Welcome to Vine Pair, the show about the conversations we have with a glass in hand. From our New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And today we're going to talk about a trend that is, I suppose, sweeping the beer world or has already swept it. We're probably a little behind said trend. And that's a beer that I am only very vaguely familiar with, the New England IPA. And Adam, I understand that to clear up my own confusion and maybe yours, you have a special guest for us. Yeah, so uh, I don't know much about this beer as well, besides I really enjoy it. So I brought Vine Pair senior staff writer Kat Walensky into the studio today to talk to us about this beer. So I figured, you know, instead of us droning on and on <laughs> about what we think we know about it, we'd bring in an expert. So I'm just going to kick it off to Kat. Um, so Kat, I think be really good if you could start us off with just an overview of what this beer is for people who maybe have been living under a rock for the last two years in the craft beer world and explain what New England IPA is and why people are so obsessed with it. Sure. So obviously it's an IPA and that style has gotten extremely popular over the past few years. It is still the reigning champ as the most popular craft beer style in the U.S., And the reason that this hazy and juicy or New England style IPA has gotten so popular. So that's what it is. So it's it's hazy and juicy. The official now, as of a few weeks ago, recognized style uh, per the Brewers Association is hazy and juicy IPA. Um, Double IPA and pale ale are also in the category. And uh, basically it's, it's easy to drink. They're super soft and pillowy in their mouthfeel. They're, like bursting with tropical notes on the aroma. They're kind of sweeter and lack all the bitterness of a typical IPA or, or a West Coast style IPA. Uh, it's like juice. You know, they call them juice bombs for that reason. They're just really fruity and tasty and people are falling head over heels for them. So when I've had them before, to me, they kind of remind me weirdly of like a wheat beer. And then they're also just, you're right, they like orange juice. So first of all, who kind of started this trend and what are they doing? How are they making this beer that is creating all these flavors? Yeah, actually, that's a really good um, tasting note because some brewers are including wheat in their grain bill. Uh, a typical IPA would have other malted barleys, um, typically two-row malt and some other varieties. But to make it kind of softer and a little sweeter and more... more um, kind of juicy that way. Brewers are adding in wheat. They're adding in oats. Um, they're also adding in other adjuncts like fruit in some cases. They're going for this like high protein um, bulking up. So some people even use apple puree for the proteins, like the, that pectin. And uh, some are actually putting flour into the beer to give it that hazy quality. Um, and this all kind of started... Not necessarily those tactics, but it started with The Alchemist in um, Vermont. And they won't say that they are the people that, you know, heralded this style. They're not calling their beer New England style IPA. Uh, But that's sort of where this extremely hopped, uh, more fruit-leaning IPA kind of came to be. And then other breweries in that area started doing it too. They're bright yellow, they're opaque, they're just like bursting with fruit notes, and they're really delicious. So they've caught on across the country and across the world even. And so what what is the beer the alchemist brewed? Like what's it actually called? If- oh, that would be Heady Topper. If you're a beer nerd, you've heard that a thousand times. Um, Vine Pear actually just recently published the oral history of Heady Topper. It's 
Um, very interesting. You should check it out. Vinefair.com. Um, that beer is one of the ones that people just go nuts over. I mean, a lot of beer nerds will wait hours in line for a lot of New England style IPAs today. Uh, but that one in particular was like, you would give your firstborn to get a taste of this beer. They were only selling it in Vermont. You could only get it at the brewery. It was kind of the beginning of that extremely limited IPA trend. Um, and it was also one of the first to be served in a can, which started a revolution of its own. So Kat, I have a question for you, and I apologize for the ignorance perhaps in this. Would you say that the sort of the hazy and juicy IPA, if we're going to use that kind of the correct terminology, is a style that's defined more by the production method of the beer or the end result? And and if in how how does that because to me I, I always think about sort of beer styles being more about the way the beer is made than necessarily what it looks like in a glass. But it sounds like this this style is really in, in part defined by the visual appearance and less exactly how the beer is made. For sure. I think a lot of brewers will say it's more about the process. And in a lot of cases, that is true. The things that they're doing to make them hazy and to make them you know, so thick and fruity do have to be there in many cases. Um, but I think the visual, the visual appeal is a huge part of our popularity. It's photogenic. It catches your eye across the tap room. I mean, they look ridiculous. I mean, it, it sets them apart. Like the first thing you see is the first thing you experience when you have a beer is, is how it looks visually. So in the same way that loggers were once revered for their clarity and beauty in that sense. Now we have this total other end of the spectrum, so to speak. I think that's so interesting. Like, do you think that's because of Instagram? I think Instagram has a lot to do with it. It's the commodity culture around craft beers in general, but Instagram definitely helps kick it off. Um, It helps people see the beer. It also became a place where people are trading the beer. If you look at some of the top New England style IPA breweries, um, when they're having these can releases, they'll announce it on their Instagram with a picture. Within minutes, there are like 20 people posting comments, you know, searching, telling people what they want. I'm in search of this. I'll trade you for that. It, it became almost a marketplace as well as um, kind of an art gallery of hazy beers. So, Kat, I also have a question for you about sort of the growth of this category because, you know, you're talking about – and I read, you know, a couple of things that you've written about this subject uh, in preparation. It seems like it really from a, a pretty humble, you know, as you mentioned, sort of this one initial brewery in Vermont that was not, you know, selling the beer anywhere but in the brewery or at the brewery. It's gone to a, a trend that is, you know, extremely influential uh, very quickly. And I, I was actually caught a little bit off guard with this. I was talking to uh, a beer writer here in Seattle about it. And I was sort of like, you know, is this something that you're seeing, you know, a few breweries in Seattle doing? He was like, uh, no, all the breweries in Seattle are making these beers, which was news to me. Um, but, you know, how, how is part of it? Zach, like, you got to drink more beer. I, you yeah, know, I, I try and tell my wife that, but she's not having it. Um, <laughs> I was, I was going to say, though, that I wonder – is it is it a style that is um, broadly scalable? Do we think that it's going to continue and continue to grow to the point where it's um, you know on maybe not equal footing with maybe the more traditional West Coast style IPA? But is it is it something that we see continuing to have this room to grow, or do we think that now that you know craft breweries coast to coast are making it that it's being distributed nationwide? Is it are we kind of do we think we're kind of reaching the the peak? I think it's really hot right now. 
and I don't really see signs of it fading. But in terms of scalability, this isn't really a beer style that you can produce on a massive scale. You do see more regional and even nationally distributed craft or independent breweries making their attempts at the style. And they kind of get halfway there. I mean, they'll get the aroma, they'll get the essence, but a true New England style IPA is just inherently kind of a small batch, ridiculous endeavor. It's not really something that (laughs) makes sense for a business that's trying to scale up their production. Um, At the same time, every brewery is doing it in Seattle and everywhere else because to survive now, you kind of need to have it. People are coming into tap rooms and saying, what's your juiciest IPA? And do you think that's because, at least in my opinion of this style, it's probably the most accessible craft beer style I've ever come across? Like I've never met anyone that doesn't like it. And so then also, do you think there is going to be an issue where someone's going to have to try to figure this out to go national? Because it almost seems like this could be the savior of the craft beer world. Like if, if someone can figure out how to make this as a national product, they could dethrone Budweiser, right? Because I've never met someone who doesn't love this beer. That's a good point. Um, even my sister, who is not a beer drinker, liked a IPA from Threes this weekend. Um yeah, it's a good point. And I think it would take a lot of raw ingredients. I mean, you need a ton of hops and not just any hops. You need the best, most tropical, most trendy hops. Oh, so it's not any hops that'll work for this. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's hops like Citra, Galaxy, Mosaic. There's infinite hybrids and new hop varietals that are coming out all the time. Is it on purpose that hop varietals sound like weed varietals <laughs> well the hop, hops and cannabis are cousins if you've ever spent any time around hop plants it is eerily similar to a college dorm room and not just from the <laughs> side. so i have a really embarrassing um admission to make which is that i've actually never tried one of these uh beers before so how have you avoided it uh well you know as previously mentioned i'm i'm not a huge beer drinker and my beer uh, tastes tend to move away from IPAs in general, mm-hmm. in part because I'm not a big fan of over bitterness. But in preparation for this podcast, I both read, Kat, I read your piece about the eight best um, nationally distributed, uh, whatever, hazy and juicy IPAs on VinePair. That's VinePair.com. Oh, and uh, and picked up your number one choice just just before coming into the studio, which is uh, Sierra Nevada's Hazy Little Thing IPA. So we're going to we're gonna play with a little bit of uh, multimedia sensation here. I'm actually going to open this can <laughs> and taste it. Um, and I'm not going to bore you guys with the sounds of me doing that exactly. But um, I, I just – I was struck by one other part of this, and, and I will – get back to you guys with my tasting notes in a moment. But I was struck by a part of this too, which is that the the aesthetic of the can seems to be a central part of this. You know, you talked about the sort of visual impact of the beer in the glass as part of the driver of this trend, but it also seems like the the labeling itself, and obviously that's important for any product. It's not, these are not the first beers to, you know, trade in part on the visual appeal of the, of the packaging, but it does seem to be kind of universal in everything I looked at, that there's an attempt to really convey uh, a certain kind of aesthetic through the design. Is that, is that something that is true or am I making that up? That's absolutely true. Um, like you said, it's the case with a lot of craft cans, especially they have become a canvas and breweries are doing amazing artwork, partnering with local artists, making really eye catching and cool stuff. Um, but this has, totally been driven by IPAs, double IPAs, double dry hopped IPAs, and now the New England style IPA. Hmm. So I just had a taste. 
I gotta what say, it's interesting. Well, it's, so it's interesting because I think like I, I'm now much more intrigued to go try maybe the more um, authentic version at some local breweries. Um, this one, I think, it is more. I, I get the sense, what, or I get what you were talking about about it being kind of a middle ground with some of these mm-hmm. national distributed ones because it has that really creamy texture that I think is obviously a, a huge part of it. And I'm also drinking it out of the can, so I can't see it as as well. I was going to say as clearly, but that seems like the wrong term here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it definitely has that sort of like creamy, rich mouthfeel that I appreciate. Um, and that is certainly uh, a little bit at odds with the typical IPA, but it has a fairly pronounced sort of hop, um, sort of uh, aromatic, and it doesn't have that sort of fruit uh, juice quality that I think you've described. So I'm gonna have to go search some out and uh, and see if there are uh, some examples in my in my hometown here that are a little bit more um, all the way in on that style. But it's definitely, you know, I, I Sierra Nevada uh, Pale Ale back in the day was one of my sort of early craft beer experiences. Um, and I liked it at the time. And then it's kind of interesting coming back to some of those same flavor notes now that I would generally avoid that style of beer. Um, but I will definitely finish this can. So it's got that going for it. Good. Do you think too that um, the New England style IPA, more than any other style, has really put a, a, a certain group of brewers on the map? So what I mean by that is, um, I think in the wine and spirit space, it's hard to come into the world and in your first few years already be a cool kid. But I think in the beer space, at least you know, I've noticed it feels like certain breweries who get good at this style very quickly become cool kids very quickly in the, in the world of craft beer. Is that accurate? It is accurate. Actually, I uh, had called into a press conference today at the craft brewers conference and they were talking about not this specifically, but that the most growth craft beer growth that we're seeing now is happening in microbreweries and it's breweries that have opened in the last four years. Breweries that opened before that aren't growing as quickly. And the ones that are coming out now, a lot of them are just launching out the gate with a big, juicy, double, dry hopped New England style IPA or a hazy IPA or whatever you want to call it. And uh, it kind of gets instant attention. And it's not necessarily a hard style to make taste really good. But so talk a little bit then about the scarcity. Like, is the scarcity of these beers, I know that people wait, wait online for hours, like even, you know, at other half in Brooklyn, people, when they do a can release, people will get there at three in the morning mm-hmm. for the beer. But like, are they doing this because it's really good marketing? And so they're making the beer scarce or are the beers really, truly that scarce? They are scarce in the sense that every time there's a can release, it's a new quote, new beer. It's a new recipe. Either it has a different hop. It was single hopped and now it's double hopped. It was double dry hopped and now it's triple dry hopped. It's a lot of riffs on kind of the same style. So every time they release something new with a new package and a cool new label and new name, um, there is that kind of commodity fetish aspect to it. But I don't think the trend would really be sustaining the way that it is if they weren't actually delicious and different enough each time. So, and then Zach, I'll let you ask a question after this, but I, I have like a, a, a really dumb question as well. Um, what's dry hopping? <laughs> this is actually kind of a controversial question. Um, dry hopping itself just means adding hops to a beer after it's been made. So the beer has been boiled, it's fermenting, and you're putting the hops in on the cold side. And uh Double dry hopping is what's really getting a lot of attention, a.k.a. DDH. DDH. And it's sort of a point of contention for some brewers because 
there's not really an explicit definition of what DDH is. It could mean there are double the dry hops, double the hops being used post-fermentation, or it can mean there are two dry hopping instances after fermentation. But like some brewers have been doing this forever, you know, like even Anchor Steam has been dry hopping since the 70s, but they didn't call it that. And now it's become really cool and it's become a really good uh, way to sell a beer. So just so I understand a little bit more of the process. So the beer goes through the boil. Mm-hmm. It then, and it, some, and you used to hop during the boil. Traditionally, there are hops in the beginning of a brew, in the middle of the brew, and at the end of the brew over the course of about an hour. Okay. And then, then the hops are pulled and it just goes through fermentation. Like yeast is pitched and it just goes through fermentation. Right. So now during fermentation, they're adding the hops? Yes. So, so it's the act, the act of fermentation, the, that process, the heat being, you know, generated during fermentation that's pulling whatever it's pulling out of the hops. So it's actually that it's no longer hot. Okay. So the reason that these this style can be so juicy is there's not the heat of the boil that's kind of extracting those astringent notes and the bitterness from the hops. It's instead just kind of soaking those more fruity, citrusy, like aromatics. It's kind of all over the place, actually. The IBUs is the is measuring the bitterness units, and that doesn't necessarily equate to more hops. Um, there are hop varietals that are higher in alpha acids than others. There's also a way of extracting aromas from a hop and even flavors that won't detract the um, the bitterness from them. So, like you can have that was actually kind of a small trend of its own was releasing zero IBU double IPAs, like claiming to have no measurable bitterness, but still being super hopped. <laughs> that seems, um, that seems like a style that like, I don't get why, but whatever. Yeah, I don't either. That, to <laughs> me, that cuts. feels like having a wine with zero acidity. Like, I guess you could do it, but why would you do it? Like, don't you need the bitterness? To drink? Yeah. A beer, an IPA is supposed to have bitterness. Speaking of this, I'm going to kind of weigh in from my like, curmudgeonly side of things here or at least voice what i think is a maybe a complaint about this style which is maybe that it is too easy to drink that it is in fact sort of antithetical to what to you know we can think whatever we want to think about sort of certain perspectives of the craft beer industry but that this sort of style that is um all about accessibility and ease of drinking is fine in some ways but that like nuance and subtlety and astringency and things that are not necessarily uh, on the face of it, easy or f- pleasurable to everyone are kind of like what define great beer in the same way that, you know, great, no one would really describe the easiest to drink wines as the best wines. And that, you know, beer is sort of in this weird middle ground where obviously there's a strong uh, sort of belief or a latent cultural thing that, you know, beer is the drink for everyone and it shouldn't be pretentious. But obviously, we're talking about a whole lot of pretension here if people are standing in line for hours and hours and hours to get uh, their hands on it. So there's something going on here. Is it is it sort of I don't know is it strange to be talking about drinkability and you know the fact that you can pound them as like the defining and utmost uh, measure of a beer's quality? I hear you <laughs> all the way. Calling a beer drinkable is one of my least favorite things to do. It's a beverage; it should inherently be drinkable, but that's actually become a more common descriptor that people see as a good sign. You know, it's so drinkable. 
And you kind of think at some point, when does it lose being a beer? I mean, there's still malt, there's still hops, there's still yeast and water. Uh, but it's so far from a balanced beverage that it kind of just becomes a category all its own. Um, and then it's just like, why aren't we drinking juice with alcohol in it? <laughs> I, mean, I would say some of these New England IPAs, to me, taste like a really, really, really good screwdriver. Yeah. There are also milkshake IPAs, smoothie IPAs. What are those? <laughs> these are New England style IPAs on like fruit steroids. Uh, there's recipes that involve a lot of berries, a lot of different fruits. That, I mean, it actually comes out thick and frothy and purple like a smoothie. And it's kind of delicious. Like there are some that I really enjoyed, but it's it's kind of absurd too. So it's like beer for people who don't actually want to be drinking beer. Kind of. And it's it's cool in the way that it can be an entry point for people. You know, they drink this crazy, delicious, ridiculous thing, and then maybe they'll kind of like back into being a beer drinker. But it's, it is strange from the curmudgeonly perspective of like, how did we get here? And what does this even mean? Do you think it's that brewers just get really bored? Because when I think about it in the same side of like distillers or winemakers, they're trying to make the best version of a lot of times the same wine or the same whiskey, et cetera, every year. Whereas I feel like even just talking about all the different brews, a lot of brewers like, Oh, I did this this time, but now I'm going to do five other different things to it next. And like, I think maybe it's just the nature of the people who become brewers that maybe they're just kind of ADD and they just want to make a bunch of different things. I don't know if they're ADD or if they're, Customers are ADD. Um, we're all a little ADD. But <laughs> it's there is a lot of being creative and being innovative and just having fun. I mean, at the end of the day, any brewer that's doing this is saying it's fun. At the same time, anecdotally, I've spoken to many brewers who are really frustrated by the fact that they have to keep making these crazy beers and changing them up every three weeks. So it sort of goes both ways. Yeah, it's, it's one of these, like, I think goosily the golden egg kind of situations or maybe Midas touch is a better example the where in the same way that ipas themselves became sort of this um, paradoxical trap for a lot of brewers where everyone wanted an ipa so if you started a brewery you had to make an ipa even if you didn't really care about making ipas and that that became your most favorite your most uh, popular your the beer you were most famous for so you had to keep making it and a lot of brewers I know here in Seattle, at least, feel really trapped by that expectation and, you know, have to commit a lot of their production to a style that they themselves are not necessarily that enthusiastic about anymore. And I can certainly see that being, you know, maybe even uh, accentuated with the juicy and hazy style where, you know, yeah, it's kind of like it's a fun thing when it's a weird little experiment that you make. But when you have people clamoring for a new one every yeah month, that sounds exhausting to me. Yes, that's exactly right. And brewers will tell you this. Off the record, a lot. <laughs> on the record, sometimes. Um, Two Roads, for example, was on that list of the more available New England-style IPAs. And the brewmaster, Phil Markowski, when he was here, told me they brewed it first kind of as a joke. It was like a play on this silly trend. And they originally called it their OJ IPA, as in orange juice. But then people liked it so much, they had to keep brewing it. And now here it is in cans being distributed in many states. So it's a, it's an interesting struggle. It's a, it's a beer and a cautionary tale all in one. <laughs> it, is. it is. Well, Kat, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and talk all about New England IPAs. Um, I wish that 
uh, Zach had brought enough to share. Yeah. Um, thanks, Zach. I know that you know you should just let us know you're doing that. You know, we got um, we got to think about a. We need an app where I can send you guys a beer all the way in New York. I will tell you, I brought one for our engineer though, Nick, who is enjoying it. So I, I didn't awesome. bring just one can. Don't worry. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, this was really great, super interesting, and uh, I can't wait to chat again next week. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you'd rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is recorded in New York City at VinePair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Jabal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Greenberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our executive editor, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.